Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Tanneth, and today I'm covering Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 6. So, we all agree that Jamie Campbell Bauer is playing Vecna, right? He is so creepy, and he's clearly involved in whatever happened with the massacre and Elle being in the Rainbow Room, and I have to wonder what the hell is his deal? As I said before, I had gotten the vibe that he was a well-intentioned extremist type of villain, but I had come to that assumption when I had thought he was, like, alien in some way, not formerly human. Now I'm thinking that he and not one, not two, but three of our mysterious minor characters are one and the same. Specifically, I think that Henry survived the events of the Creel House, and that the government faked his death and had him join Elle's program, where he became number one. From there, I'm a bit less certain of how it played out. I'm not sure whether I think the program elevated him from subject to orderly, or if he's somehow fooling them and faking his identity. But all in all, I'm saying that I think Henry is one, is this orderly, is Vecna. And if that's true, then it means that Vecna is formerly human. He's not something alien, something otherworldly, something original to the Upside Down. So my old notions of, like, blue and orange morality have to be thrown out the window. This is a person who I suspect is maybe trying in some way to be merciful, but it's not because he can't understand that he's causing at least as much pain as he thinks he's sparing people from. Which means that maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree, thinking that he's well-intentioned but murderously misguided. Still, though, this episode puts his motivations into question. If this orderly is Vecna, and this orderly was creepy as all get out, yet helped Elle access her powers, what does that mean for Vecna's motives? I just don't know what to make of this guy. But we'll get to that, I guess. Perhaps I can come up with some new theory as I go through the orderly scenes again. In the meantime, let's get into this recap. Our episode opens in Hawkins in the aftermath of Patrick's death. Of course, Jason cannot be fucked to use his brain. He's got that 80s Christian good boy brain rot, and so in the span of a few hours, he's gone from I don't believe in that supernatural crap to how can you fight the devil if you don't believe in him? Because he literally now thinks that Eddie, a fucking high school student with a dork-ass personality and bad hair, is in league with Lucifer and cursing the people of the town. Even worse than that, though, is that he can't even be fucked to keep his accusations directed toward Eddie. That would be atrocious and insane and utterly unforgivable. But he also feels the need specifically to go after the rest of the Hellfire Club, too. Dustin, Lucas, Mike, and maybe even Erica are on the chopping block for him. And I dread to think which of them the mob is going to find first. And if we're being honest here, unless Jason is the son of a powerful man in town or something, then Jason is the one who, in reality, would probably have been done in for this shit. Jason is in the police station, trying to convince the cops that Satan is in town, and it was his girlfriend who died first, and now he's been found literally holding the mangled corpse of his friend, with no outside witnesses willing to testify to what happened. Being a basketball player alone, being white alone, being male alone, isn't gonna get you out of that. Having manipulative adult men in your corner. That is what would get you out of that. Having your daddy, having your coach, having someone willing to pressure the cops into letting you walk, that is how this teenager would actually manage to dodge the charges here. I guess what I'm saying is that I think it's a little bit ridiculous that we haven't seen Jason's parents, or anyone, adult involved in this plotline. Especially considering that this dude playing Jason could easily pass for 35. Maybe seeing his mom and dad would have made it easier for me to believe that he's a child. But anyway, on to that unnamed military dude who's been running around. The agent that survived last episode? 
In this episode, he's being tortured to get him to give up L. He claims that he doesn't know where she is, and to be honest, I hope that's true. I expect this military guy is probably going to kill him whether he gives up L or not. In that case, it's best to just remove the temptation. And I've gotta say, I really don't know how I feel about this portrayal of the military here. Of course, I don't inherently hate it. I'm always down for calling out the US military and its penchant for committing war crimes and harboring truly heinous criminals. But there's a larger overall thing going on here, a very 80s tribalism that I find a bit distasteful. It feels like we're doing soldiers versus scientists as the grown-up version of the fabulously overdone jocks versus nerds angle. And I am hella over both of those things. Also, I'm feeling completely in the dark about where this military plot thread is even going, and we've only got three episodes left in this entire season after this one. So I'm starting to wonder if it's really going to turn out to be necessary to the plot in the first place. But at Project Nina, Brenner is comparing Elle's power's disappearance to what happens after someone suffers a stroke. When your brain gets fucked over like that, recovery means relearning everything in a slow, aggravating process. And he proposes that this is what Elle will have to do. She will have to relearn how to access and harness her abilities, and for that to happen, she needs to suit back up and dive once more into that sensory deprivation chamber. And her memories. Her apparently repressed memories. So let's talk about this. The concept of repressed memories is fundamentally tied to the Satanic Panic era. Satanic Panic was equal parts old people hating young people's music and Christians hating anyone who wasn't Christian. As it was, psychologists lied about the efficacy of hypnosis and the accuracy of so-called recovered memories. Here's the truth. Satanic Panic can be considered to have started with the 1980 publication of a supposedly non-fictional book titled Michelle Remembers. It tells the story of a woman who was ritualistically abused by Satanists as a child in horrific and utterly unbelievable ways, and had no memory of what she endured until her therapist unlocked those traumatic memories for her via hypnosis. Except that was all bullshit. It was all bullshit. Michelle probably believed every word of it. But that's because she had been tricked and manipulated by an abusive therapist who groomed her into marrying him afterwards. I don't know if Michelle was ever abused by her parents, but I do know two definite facts about her. She was absolutely not ever abused by Satanists, and she was abused by the man she trusted to help protect her mental health. And Michelle is not a unique case. Michelle was held up as the standard when her book came out, and she is the standard though not in the way that society first believed. She is not and should not be the poster child for therapists successfully recovering true memories of long-term child abuse. Instead, she is perhaps the most prominent case of a therapist convincing a vulnerable person that they had endured unimaginable traumas that never actually happened. It is not typical for the brain to unconsciously repress memories in order to protect itself. And implanting fake memories is extremely easy. Meaning that if there is something in your past that's forgotten, you cannot rely on an outside force to remember it. You certainly cannot trust someone like Dr. fucking Brenner to tell you the truth. So what I'm saying here, I suppose, is twofold. First and foremost, Brenner is not trustworthy in this plotline. I do not trust that what he's showing is the truth, and I do not trust that what she is remembering is the truth in part or in whole. It may be. We will see. But right now, I do not trust it for a single fucking second. And then, secondarily, if this is intended to be a genuine, played-straight, recovering, repressed memories from a traumatic childhood story beat, I find that wildly irresponsible. You cannot tell a story about satanic panic and wholeheartedly endorse this kind of recovering of repressed memories at the same time. Recovering repressed memories is one of the primary matches to light the flames of the 80s-90s version of that wacky-ass Christian hysteria lynch mob.
and to endorse it here is absolutely bananas to me. Please tell me that this plotline is not what it seems to be. But I suppose for now I have to address it as if it's true. Elle is scared of the hints she's seen in her mind's eye of the lab massacre, and Brenner claims that she has, quote, demons in her past, and so they must proceed carefully. The whole thing just makes me mad. Again, I do not trust Brenner's intentions at all here, and I sincerely doubt that he's right about Elle's demons, and I suppose that leaves me suspecting that he's trying to convince her that she's dangerous for a reason. At this point, I think my theory is that he's trying to make sure that she remembers things the way he wants her to. Otherwise, he's trying to get her to remember things to the best of his recollection, and he's missing a key piece in the puzzle, but doesn't know it. Because I really don't buy this, you've got demons bullshit. Not when creepy-ass Jamie Campbell Bower is running around. If anyone has got fucking demons, it is not Elle. It's him. But back in Hawkins, the Scooby gang is on their way back to Eddie, except that he's not there because another person died right in front of him while they were distracted. And Robin has a line here implying that they intend to get to Vecna at some point in this story to reach him in the Upside Down and, I don't know, die? Because they can't possibly physically fight him, right? I mean, it just seems so absurd to me that she's apparently been hoping to enter the Upside Down and literally physically confront him because I'd had no idea that notion was on the table at all. But this line is blatantly obvious foreshadowing even before we get to the lake scene later, and once we've reached that one, yeah, they're going to the Upside Down to try to literally fight this guy, and surely you all are as sure as I am that this idea cannot possibly end well? But meanwhile, in Utah, the California gang make it to Salt Lake City and Dustin's girlfriend's crazy Mormon house. There are about 20 million children living in this house, and each is more insane than the last, and I will put this in the nicest way possible. This family bucks my mental stereotype of Salt Lake City Mormons, that's for sure. How there is this much energy in a household where it's considered a sin to have caffeine, I will never understand. And where the fuck is the mother of all of these children, by the way? Not that I mean it in a mothers should think of nothing but their spouses and their children kind of way. Just that I'm pretty sure 80s Mormons did almost universally think that way. So where is she? And why is this quasi-goth daughter running the household in her place? Up on the roof, the boys finally find Susie. She is not remotely concerned enough by their presence, and I find this whole thing... I don't know. What's the opposite of charming? Charmless, I suppose. I find it charmless. On to Russia. I hadn't actually thought that Yuri's plane had made it all the way to Asia by the time Joyce and Murray brought it down, but apparently they were really close to Yuri's destination. After some taunting and negotiation, Yuri agrees to take Murray and Joyce to his smuggler's hideout. He tells them that they'll have to reach the prison by nightfall if they want a chance of getting Hopper out alive, though, and it's not clear what he means until we see the prisoners all being led into not the area that's so clearly an arena, or a feeding ground, but instead a decked-out dining room with a glorious banquet. Now... It's a little silly to have it set up this way. They present this as if it's a matter of fattening these guys up for the Demogorgon to eat in a few hours, but that legit does not make sense. They haven't been eating well for a while. One good meal is not going to change that, and it doesn't matter anyway because they'll hardly even have time to digest this before the Demogorgon gets started digesting them. It's very silly but very telling. I think it's safe to say from the way that this and the next Hopper scene play out that everyone who isn't named Hopper or calling himself Enzo is a red shirt. These guys are going to be collateral damage. They're going to be the bodies that go down to buy Hopper and the guard enough time to light the Demogorgon's ass up. And while I'm sure their plan is going to work at least well enough to preserve Hopper's life, 
While the rest of the specifics are up in the air, will Joyce and Murray make it there before the fight, or after it? Will Enzo live, or will he get a heroic sacrifice or a tragic death of some kind? And is there any way that I can make sure that Yuri gets eaten? Honestly, I think the most likely outcome is that Joyce and Murray and Hopper and maybe Enzo will make a break for it by unleashing the Demogorgon on all of the Russians, both prisoner and guard alike. Anyway, in the past, we find teenager Elle remembering her life as baby Elle. Her powers aren't working even in the simplest of manners, and so Jamie Campbell Bauer shows up to tell Elle about one who apparently Papa said doesn't exist. And Jamie uses that to broach a touchy subject, that Brenner doesn't always tell the truth. Jamie claims to have known one, and that one had been a lot like Eleven is now, except that he says it all in such a way that I strongly suspect he is one, or else that he went after one the same way he's now going after Elle. Or maybe the whole damn thing is a lie, and one really did never exist. That would be a fun and unexpected twist. In any case, he gives Elle what appears to be the key to unlocking her powers. He tells her the truth about that incident from a few years ago, when a strange woman interrupted her and Eight, aka Callie. He tells her that the strange woman was her mom, and that Brenner's been lying about her mother all of these years. It's part of a very clear motivation. What's happening is essentially the opposite of a Patronus in Harry Potter. For those of you who are not unabashedly millennial, allow me to clarify. In Harry Potter, creatures called Dementors are a metaphor for depression, and they are defeated by a spell called the Patronus, which can only be conjured by tapping into the power of your happiest memories. Here, then, is the opposite. Elle is only able to finally access her power by finding out the details of just how awful her life really is. The rage, the heartbreak, the turmoil of knowing that Brenner is lying to her, keeping her mother from her, and that her mom got so close to rescuing her. That is what fuels Elle's abilities. And it makes me wonder if we're doing a Zuko thing here. Again, I know, I know, I'm a millennial, but for those of you familiar with Avatar The Last Airbender, you should recall that a large part of the show's villain-turned-hero redemption arc involved Zuko, a pyromancer by another name, temporarily losing his abilities. In his case, he couldn't access them because he was no longer fueled by rage. His power was always tied to his own trauma and despair and desperation and anger, and when he started to heal, he couldn't readily access those emotions and use them the way that he had. So he had to learn how to use his powers again by tapping into something healthier than fury and anguish. And like I said, I wonder if the Stranger Things writers are going to be doing the same thing with Elle. If she accessed her powers for the first time by harnessing her pain, must she do that again? Must her pain always be her driving force? Or can she someday learn to be both well-adjusted and powerful? Whatever the truth is, Brenner does not fail to notice Jamie lurking around Elle. Right now, that notice is confined to lingering eye contact, just short of outright glaring. Soon, though, it will manifest as outright torture. Unless we can't actually believe all of what we see. Out in the woods of Hawkins, Dustin and Steve are arguing over the compass. They're trying to find Skull Rock, a makeout spot where Eddie is waiting for them, but the compass seems to be taking them in the wrong direction. And when have we seen that before? Seriously, I was so pleased with myself when I figured this one out before the characters did. This is very reminiscent of season one, when Elle was fucking with their compass while they wandered around, and so of course the compass fuckery here is also related to the Upside Down. The compass genuinely isn't pointing north anymore, it's pointing to the gate beneath the lake where Patrick died. Now, why Patrick's death resulted in a fully open gate while Chrissy's only resulted in a crack, well, I'm unclear on that one. I hope there is an answer incoming, but maybe it's just plot contrivance? Either way, it gives us an access point to the Upside Down, so I guess we really are going in. But that is later. 
For now, Lucas is putting together that Vecna is going after people with trauma, and he gets a lovely emotional moment with Max, apologizing and trying to convince her that he sees her now, and that's a very powerful word choice when it comes to depression, especially teen depression. But despite Caleb McLaughlin really selling this speech, I find it hard to believe. Not that I don't think Lucas means what he says, I just mean that I don't think he really does see Max as well as he thinks he does. I love the romanticized notion of a person really seeing another person. I just don't believe that it's really possible in any meaningful way. Even the most observant of us can fail to notice things right in front of our eyes, and what's obvious to the person enduring it can be completely hidden from any onlookers. The world will never truly know our interiority. Our minds are a mystery, often even to ourselves. How can we ever expect anyone else to truly understand? And while Lucas and Max are having a moment, so are Robin and Nancy. They're friends now, it's official, and Robin's obvious wish for Nancy and Steve to get back together leads to a conversation about Nancy's idea of what the heck is going on in her relationship with Jonathan. It turns out that Jonathan was supposed to come to Hawkins for spring break and he backed out, and Nancy doesn't know why it feels like he's trying to distance himself from her. She worries that maybe he's met someone else, and he isn't picking up the phone, and all in all, it's just a nerve-wracking phase of her relationship, and I really have to wonder where we're going with this. Because I can't lie. I don't like the possibilities. Given the way the episode ends, I don't think that episode 7 will involve Steve's death. But, of all the Scooby gang, I do think he's the most likely to go. First it's him, then it's Max, then maybe Will, and then Murray, and then maybe Lucas or Hopper. Mike and Elle, I guarantee they're safe, and Robin is probably, because I don't think they're going to bury their only lesbian. And I don't think the others are in any real danger either from a storytelling standpoint, except for Eddie. I kind of suspect that Eddie is doomed, but I guess that could still be up in the air. In any case, if Steve dies this season, it means that Nancy and Jonathan almost certainly won't break up. If they do break up though, I give it 50-50 odds that either Nancy gets back together with Steve or decides she's better off single for a while, while still keeping the Stancy ship a possibility. But Steve's death bolstering the Nancy-Jonathan relationship feels like a very TV show thing to do, and I'm just really scared that they might do it. He is the show's breakout character, which means he should be safe. But if we're right on the cusp of the end of the penultimate season, maybe the writers and the showrunners and even the suits at Netflix are willing to finally let Steve go. I think it would be a misstep, especially if it's primarily in service of Nancy's character development, but there we go. And now for something I like even less than my worries about Steve. Is there anything worse in the world than a rural town hall meeting? Maybe a rural school board meeting. In 2022, that's probably worse, yes. As for this one, it goes about as badly as it possibly could. Concerned parents are in a panic, looking for someone to blame and someone to metaphorically or literally beat up to assuage their fears and frustrations. They start by questioning the cops, as if these bumpkins have any better idea how to run an investigation than Hopper's guys do, and then good Christian boy Jason comes in to whip up a lynch mob. And his efforts pay off. He points everyone toward the Hellfire Club as Dustin, Lucas, and Mike's parents all look on, and it is really upsetting, to say the least. Nothing good is going to come out of this, and if I were Lucas's parents in particular, I would be grabbing my kids and moving the fuck out of this town. Like, get in the car and just drive until you hit California or New York or fucking Canada. I swear, I had better get to see Jason die by the end of this season. That motherfucker made flyers for his Christian supremacist lynch mob to hunt little boys. Get his ass, Vecna. 
But then we're back to Salt Lake City. The boys have fed Susie a really stupid lie. They want her to find the computer that they're looking for, but they've told her that Project Nina is the code name for an American response to the NES. Unfortunately, though, despite the fact that she would do anything for Dustin, she has gotten herself in trouble since we first saw her at the start of the season. In fact, it was changing Dustin's grades that got her into trouble in the first place. Her dad found out she was dating not only a non-Mormon, but a non-Christian, and so he took her computer away because this is a very healthy and respectful household. Never trust a motherfucker that makes his children call him father. Given that there's 30,000 children in this house, though, there are ample opportunities to get into her father's study. Many little snot-nosed distractions are going to be able to help. Before we get to that, though, we get to something a bit more fun. It is distressing and not exactly as much of a delight as I wish it were, but it's something new we've never seen before, and so I am wholly on board. It's a parent team-up with Dustin's mom, Lucas's mom and dad, Mike's mom and dad, Mike's little sister, and Erica gathering at Mike's house to brainstorm how to protect the boys. I don't know yet if anything is going to come of this, but I'm really excited by the prospect that it will. This show is phenomenal about relationship exploration and team building and pairing off characters, and I am so thrilled to see where this is going to go. So back at Skull Rock, the Scooby gang is putting together the pieces and lamenting the fact that Elle isn't there to help them. But thanks to Eddie's testimony, they now know how Vecna works, and thanks to Dustin's compass, they know how to find the gate. But now we're back to Elle's memories. Shit is rough. The subjects are competing in a kind of telekinetic battle, and two is kicking everyone's ass. But before the game even starts, Brenner has what I think is a pretty telling line that I missed the first time I watched it. He says that they have to keep strong emotions like anger out of their mind if they want to be able to use their powers, which is precisely the opposite of what Jamie Campbell Bauer said that Elle should do. He's stoking the flames of her anger, and it's clear that Jamie is right to do so, in a sense. Tapping into her trauma works, in spite of what Brenner says here. Except... This doesn't really match with what we saw of Brenner in the previous episode, does it? Before, in the scene when Elle was trying to illuminate light bulbs with her mind, Brenner was specifically trying to trigger her powers via shame. He forced her to focus on her humiliation, to dwell on how everyone was laughing at her, and it worked enough to light a bulb. So which is it? Should she be using emotion to fuel her powers, or shouldn't she? And if the others can be emotionless while they perform, but Elle needs emotion to manifest any abilities... What is the difference between Elle and the rest of them? I am very curious about all of this, and again, I don't trust Brenner as far as I can throw him. Also, the sound effects for Two's powers are deeply silly. It's not important, but I couldn't let it slip by without noting it. Then, at last, it's Elle's turn to fight Two. Jamie Campbell Bauer says nothing more than good luck to her, but that's apparently enough to earn him the electroshock torture that we see later. For now, though, Elle is flashing back to his advice from earlier. She remembers her mother, and she's angry as all hell, and she throws two so hard across the room that she cracks the observation glass. And two, though he should be intimidated at worst and impressed at best, he instead gets it in his head that he wants revenge. In Russia, after establishing how bossy we American women are, and yes, we are, Joyce and Murray announce to Yuri their plan. They're not going to be breaking into the prison to free Hopper, they're going to be infiltrating with Yuri's help. He's going to get them inside by switching places with Murray. Murray is going to be Yuri, and Yuri is going to be Murray. It's very silly, I'm very amused, A-plus stupid wordplay. I don't know if it's going to work, of course, but a good plan is a good plan. I will keep my fingers crossed. And at the prison itself, Hopper picks a fight with Enzo so that he can get close enough to the guards to pickpocket a lighter to go with that alcohol that he stole. 
He's going to kill the Demogorgon or die trying, and in reality I would say that die trying was the more likely outcome because surely the Russians wouldn't just stand there and watch while their pet monster is killed. But the Demogorgon is much more likely to die next episode than Hopper is, so I would wager the plan is going to work. Then it's back to Salt Lake City. Susie's siblings distract their father with the veritable circus that goes on in his household, and it's nowhere near as funny as the show clearly wants it to be. And I'm pretty sure that everything that's happening technologically in this subplot is kind of anachronistic and a tad Hollywood hacker, but I don't know enough to say for sure. That shit about Susie having geolocation software on the computer sure doesn't sound right, though. Why would her dad have that installed on the computer in 1986? Could you even store third-party software on your hard drive yet in 1986? I feel like adult for asking, and maybe I'm completely wrong here, but this feels... not right, right? I always assumed you had to run most things off of floppy disks in this era. Also, that's not really what the Amiga UI looked like, right? I mean, it's honestly news to me that computers in 1986 even had UIs more advanced than command lines, so... I am wildly out of my element here, so I guess I'll just shut up. Anyway, accurate or not, Susie gets the boys' coordinates to Project Nina and brags about her printer, while her father gets lost in an old-school family comedy downstairs. And then the boys are off to Nevada, but not before having to pull Argyle away from Susie's older sister. They are stoned out of their minds, which is hella bold for a Mormon daughter still in her father's house, I'm pretty sure, and Susie looks like she's having some kind of a whole revelation right now. I imagine it's supposed to be that she's shocked? But the actress's expression gives more a whole new world has just opened up for me than what have you done. But, um, whatever the hell she's thinking, I really do hope we're done with her, if I'm being honest. Back in Hawkins, the cops are at least keeping their heads better than the rest of the town. I can't pretend that I find that especially accurate to reality, but if it helps our Scoobies, I will take it. Speaking of whom, the gang has made it to the lake. They have to split up, though. There's only one boat, and it can't hold all of them. Now, the way they split up is very dumb. It's clearly not a logical decision. This is the writers knowing what they want to happen and having their characters act a bit weirdly to facilitate it. The Duffer brothers clearly want the younger kids in police custody and the older kids in the upside down, so it's the older ones who get in the boat and the younger ones who are left standing around right where the police are headed. Back in Elle's memories, she's alone in the rainbow room when she hears Jamie screaming. He is, unless this is some kind of a trick, being shocked by Brenner and company. Elle spies and narrowly avoids being caught as they drag Jamie away afterwards. Then she heads back into the Rainbow Room, just in time to be assaulted by Two and his friends. It's a really dumb portrayal of bullying. The actor playing Two does not sell this shit at all. He's bringing the weirdest fucking energy to this, and it's just cringe all the way down. I get the point, but like, I wonder if it's necessary for me to have watched that awfully acted nonsense? As for Elle, she's putting some pieces together, but I dare say she's missing too many for us to really make sense of this yet. She sees the what-have-you-done moment, and apparently it puts her into cardiac arrest again, and again, I don't buy this for a second. Firstly, if she killed them, the older ones definitely had it coming. Society doesn't need super-powered monsters like them. Secondly, if this was the whole story, we would have seen it as one continuous narrative. Instead, we're getting it in little chunks, which means that something big is being kept from us. Until I see the whole thing play out uninterrupted all the way through, I am going to wonder what it is that the writers are hiding. And I'm willing to bet that it's Jamie being Vecna. As for the rest of the episode, we're nearing the end. The older four kids stop their boat atop the spot where the compass goes wild, and Steve dives down to find the gate. It's there, but it drags him in and pulls him into the Upside Down, which is filled with monsters that are eager to eat him. 
Luckily, Nancy is right on his tail, and Robin's right after her, with Eddie pulling up the rear, so hopefully Steve has got a quick rescue in his future. Though those little bat-like fuckers sure do seem to be ripping off big chunks of him in the meantime. And y'all had better leave my boy alone. And then, on the lakeside, Max and Lucas and Dustin see the cops heading their way. To protect Eddie and the others, because they don't yet know a lynch mob is on their trail, they lead the cops off on a wild goose chase away from the lake. Here's hoping that turns out well. So, this is our penultimate episode to this first section, our first volume, I think the Duffer Brothers are calling it. Um, and I don't know what we're going to be doing in the next episode. I am very intrigued to see where we finish off this first section of the season. I think it should be probably pretty undeniable that we're going to do some kind of a cliffhanger. Because with the, the final section of the season being just two episodes, we're really pretty much already moving in towards the climax of the season. So it's definitely a perfect place to break on a climax, leave us for, you know, three weeks, four weeks, make sure Netflix gets, you know, an extra month of subscriptions in there, and then come back to give the proper climax in the next two episodes. Um, but what does any of that look like? I, like I said, don't think that Steve is going to be killed in the next episode, but I do have very strong suspicions that he is going to be killed this season, which scares me. Um, so we could see him die in the next episode. I don't know. I'm worried about Max still. I'm a little bit worried about Lucas, I think. Murray, I'm worried about. I'm, I'm worried about a lot of the different characters. I don't think Elle is in any danger, but Will, I'm worried about. I just, I have a lot of worries at this point in the season, and... I don't know how all that's going to work out for me. Not yet, at least. I'm going to be back, of course, next week with my coverage of the next episode, the final episode of Volume 1. Um, by the time you are hearing it on the feed, I am sure that Volume 2 will have already come out. But now, right now, as I record this episode, having just written the script, we're a couple of weeks away. So, I'm in a weird place. And I don't want to have to wait. I'm going to sit down and watch the last episode of this volume as soon as physically possible. And then I'm going to have to wait. And I don't know how to handle that. I don't like... I don't like the idea of half a season dropping and then more later. If you will recall, I think the first time Netflix did that was specifically with um, season five of Arrested Development. And it was the worst decision I think anyone has ever made. Canceling Arrested Development for Fox, that was a bad decision. But... Everything, all of the decisions that Netflix made about Arrested Development, they were all bad decisions, and I think the splitting the season into two was the worst one. And I don't, I'm not sure why they did it. I don't know if it's some kind of a weird Emmys trick. I don't know if it was some kind of a weird hype trick. I don't know if they were just trying to get subscribers to stick around for a little while. But that first half of the season came out, and no one liked it. And so when the second half of the season came out, I didn't even find out until it had already been out two days. They didn't advertise it. Nothing. It was just nothing. And I'm sure, of course, that is not what's going to happen here. That's not going to happen to Stranger Things. First and foremost, the first half of Stranger Things this season has been fucking good. Unlike Arrested Development Season 5. But it's still a weird choice. The thing that appeals to most people about Netflix, I think, is the bingeability. No one wants weekly episodes on Netflix. And so this... Thing of releasing some episodes and then a month later more feels like the worst kind of a compromise and i don't think i'm going to like it 
we will find out. I will be able to say for sure once those episodes actually do drop on, I think, the 1st of July. But we'll see. We'll see if the anticipation helps. We'll see if the buildup kind of kills my excitement. I don't know. We'll see how this goes. I am intrigued and confused. But in the meantime, like I said, I'm going to be back in a week with my coverage of the next episode. And for now, if you are interested in my reaction videos, those are available on a weekly schedule to $5 patrons or on an immediate schedule to $10 patrons. If you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching after Stranger Things and Umbrella Academy, then you're going to want to join my $1 or higher Patreon tier where you get access to my polls helping me decide what it is that I watch. If you're not interested in any of that, that's perfectly acceptable. You may want to leave a rating or a review so that my show gets helped out a little bit, a little tiny bit, with the algorithm on various, you know, podcatchers. But other than that, I would just be very pleased if you actually do come back next week and listen to more of my thoughts on this season of Stranger Things. I'm really enjoying it. I hope you are enjoying these episodes. And other than that, all I have left to say is, as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you join me again soon. They are stoned out of their minds, which is hella bold for a Mormon daughter still in her daughter's house, I'm pretty sure. In her daughter's house? <laughs>